Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn to the book of John. We're taking a little bit of a detour here as we've been working through Luke. The message today is filling in the blanks, and that's what I want to kind of do this morning. I want to kind of fill in the blanks of some things that are going to be missing as we look at Luke, and then we're going into the Holy Week. Let me ask you, as you're turning to John chapter 12, have you ever had that feeling that doom and despair are just around the corner? You remember that feeling that, that, that the other shoe is about to drop or someone's about to drop the hammer? Maybe it's after, you know, the night before a big test, a big interview, or some other type of decision that's coming down, and there's just that kind of dread that's just kind of hanging over you? It's not a fun feeling, is it? I mean, how many times have we had sleepless nights because of something that's coming up the next day that we're worried about and anxious about or just concerned about? Maybe it's our family, whatever it might be. How do you respond? How do you cope with impending sufferings and trial, troubles and tests? Usually we have sleepless nights, we have trouble concentrating on tasks ahead, wondering when that hammer will fall. Yet, As we open our pages of our text this morning in John 12, we see Jesus is spending time with some friends, enjoying a dinner party, and getting some much-deserved peace and quiet. Over the past few months, we have been reading the section of Luke's orderly account of the life of Jesus that's been focused on his final journey to Jerusalem. His impending death is very near. He is using this time wisely by preparing his disciples to continue his earthly ministry after his crucifixion, death, resurrection, and then his ascension. He has been instructing them about the kingdom of God, how to enter into the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God is like? Uh, what, what, what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. The last few chapters have, deta- have detailed that one must be persistent, humble, and trusting to enter into the kingdom of God. Repentance, perseverance, and humility are marks of those that are its citizens. And Jesus warns us not to be like the rich young ruler that, that wanted to inherit eternal life but walked away sad because it cost too much. But we are to be like Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who counted the cost of following Jesus and found it more profitable to choose Christ. Jesus also emphasized the importance of being ready for the coming of the kingdom of God, for we do not know when that day will come. And though the kingdom has been inaugurated through his ministry, it will not be finalized until the day when Christ returns at the end of the age. In Luke's gospel... Jesus is depicted as the servant of God who comes as the savior of the world. Jesus pronounced in Luke chapter 4 that the spirit of the Lord is is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
This message is good news for the poor, the maligned, the outcast, and the sinner. Patrick uh, Schreiner summarized Luke's gospel writing that he, speaking of Luke, has a particular interest in the upside-down nature of the kingdom. Jesus is the savior of the world. This includes women, it includes the underprivileged, the ethnically marginalized, those who typically were not part of the religious leaders focused. He goes on to write that unlike Matthew, Luke is concerned with dates. He places the events in the widest possible social and political context. We get a little bit more background with Luke. And unlike Mark, who has Jesus rushing about, remember we talked about Mark, it's immediately, it's immediately, and immediately, and immediately. Luke writes an early account where Jesus moves deliberately towards his goal, the cross, Calvary, that divine appointment. He goes on to write that Jesus is declared innocent by Rome, yet he is still crucified. His passion, passion, excuse me, and exaltation install him, though, as the Savior of the world. It's just a matter of view for those who weren't here and just to kind of gather us before we take this last step into the, the end part of Luke. I want to give you some reminders of what we've studied over what, I mean, what has it been the last? Well, this message is what, number 109, so we've been two years in Luke. Just a reminder, again, what we've learned and studied. Luke is the longest gospel. It is the only gospel written by a Gentile. It's the basis for the popular Jesus film. Anybody here, by the way, have seen the Jesus film? Okay, very popular. It's been, uh, been uh, translated in over 1,700 languages with over 572 million decisions for Christ. Luke strongly gives warnings to the rich it sympathizes with the poor and the social outcasts. It features abundance. Many of the, the stories are around food and meals and community. It focuses much on worship. It features the working of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune, more than the other Gospels. It details more of Jesus' early life as we get a picture not only of his birth, but we also saw when he was around 12 years of age. It also features parables as the two debtors, the Good Samaritan, the friends at midnight, the rich fool, that of the barren tree, the lost coin, the prodigal son, and so on and so forth. The rich man and Lazarus, Pharisee, and the tax collector, the persistent widow. The setting of Luke's account, as we look at where he's setting it, it's compiled into three parts, which we've been kind of studying as we went on, and it's set off by geography. First, we saw Jesus teaches and heals in Galilee. Then he sets out for Jerusalem, and that, that's where we've been for these last few months. And now where we're going to go as we go into next week is Jesus finally arrives at Jerusalem. The main themes are salvation, prayer, and joy. Now, next week, we're going to continue with Jesus' final leg of his journey to Jerusalem as he enters the city on the back of a donkey, receiving the adulations and the worship of the crowd. But I wanted to take a moment this week to kind of fill in the blanks, so to speak, of what happens between his encounter with Zacchaeus, as we left off in Luke, and the blind man and his teaching on faithful stewards, from the last few weeks that we've been looking at. And in doing so, I want to give us a clearer picture of the danger that awaits Jesus. Uh, very quickly, as Easter season comes, things just seem to speed up as we go in from spring 
right in the summer. I want to take a moment to really consider as we go into the Easter Holy Week is what is it is really going on. So with that, take your Bibles, John chapter 12, 1 through 7. It will be up here on the screen on the monitor. But again, I always want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. It's good to write on and make notes, highlight, so on and so forth. In John chapter 12, we read this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for John uh, through the Holy Spirit preserving us now 2,000 years later that we may read of you. And Father, I pray that you open up our minds and hearts for this is, do- this is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. It's not just an old story. It's just not information. Lord, even this passage is to transform our minds, our hearts, and our wills to yours. And so Father, I pray that you, as we go through this, open up our minds, our hearts to discern, give us wisdom. And Lord, above all, may your Holy Spirit have free reign that we may respond to its work in your name. Amen. So in this passage, we learn that it's Saturday. It's six days before the Passover, the time where they would have the Passover from Exodus. Remember, they were to celebrate that every year to honor it. It takes place in Bethany, a city that's about two miles from Jerusalem. It's at the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Uh, that Lazarus was the one who raised, was raised from the dead that we spoke about a little bit earlier in our scripture reading. And in the house... We read of Jesus spending time with some close friends. Martha is serving. Mary is worshiping. Lazarus is reclining. Judas is complaining. And Jesus is correcting. That always seems to be kind of the case of what's going on. But among the dinner guests, as we know with Judas, there's one who is the betrayer, the one who's going to set many of these things into motion. Now, as we first read this chapter, this passage, it kind of seems strange that Jesus seems to be just chilling with some friends eating dinner, knowing, knowing what's happening, what's about to happen. What a sight that dinner table must have been. But not only Jesus at the table, but also Lazarus, who only a short time ago was dead, was in the grave. Then Mary takes an expensive perfume and begins to anoint Jesus. Could you imagine being a fly on the wall there at that house? Of course, Judas reacts with bewilderment, begins to criticize her. However, Jesus responds that it was the right thing to do as he recognizes that his time is near the end. Jesus, knowing what's about to happen, is just taking some time and relaxing with friends. I don't know if you and I could be doing that, knowing what the week holds for us. 
Now, the next day is going to be kind of nice, but then Jesus is going to put into motion things that are going to end with his torture and his, his death. But here Jesus is taking time with some very close friends. That's, a kind of, that's the part of Jesus that we don't think about very much. Mary Lazarus and Martha were, were not his disciples who followed him around. Lazarus was not one of the disciples of Christ as we think of, uh, of Matthew and, and James and, and, and John and so on. They're just friends. Jesus had friends that he liked to hang on with, to hang around with. It even tells us that when Lazarus died, Jesus actually wept. However, though the things inside the house seem serene with just a few moments, tense moments, outside of the house is a different story. With that, go back to John chapter 12 and go down to verse 9. And here we see the turmoil that's starting to happen outside. Now, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only on account of him, but they also wanted to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because of account of many of him, account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Things are not so hunky-dory outside of the home. As usual, whenever Jesus went, wherever Jesus went, a great crowd was sure to follow. Some were admirers. Some were just seeking healing. They were self-seeking. They just wanted to be healed. Others were curious about this man they have heard of, while others were critical and condemning of him. John informs us that this that mixed in uh, that mixed in this in, in this group were those who just wanted to glimpse Lazarus, a dead man who's now walking. They wanted to see if the rumors were correct. But also there were those who wanted to kill Lazarus and put an end to Jesus' ministry uh, right then and there. John tells us that this great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Had, had created a wellspring of, of people who were believing in Jesus and began to follow him. They could not let this stand. Now, as we read earlier in our scripture reading, the religious leaders had already resolved to put Jesus to death. Now they add Lazarus to their cruel, heinous, hellish, wicked, vile, and diabolical schemes. James Hamilton Jr. writes in his commentary on John's gospel, you'll see it here in a monitor, that their concern is very simple. If they do not take action against Jesus, he will win universal approval. They could not have that happen. Everyone will accept him and his cause. That's what Randy was reading earlier, their fear. The Pharisees, as he continues, seem to fear that Jesus will be acclaimed as the longed-for king, which could then lead to revolt against Rome. And we've seen this before. When he fed the 5,000, they wanted to take him and make him king, and he had to kind of hide himself and get away from the crowd. He knew what was in men. Just six miles away, the environment of Jerusalem is a powder keg ready to blow with a mixture of energy emotion, and excitement. This is what is waiting Jesus in Jerusalem. It is fueled by curiosity, conviction, criticism, and confrontation. The temperature is rising in Jerusalem. The crowd was torn between praising Jesus or cursing him. The religious leaders are seeking to kill him at all costs. 
The religious leaders are resolved to put Jesus' death and put out, and they put out an order for the people to inform them where Jesus was so they may arrest him. There are spies all around looking for him. Pastor John MacArthur notes that though subject to Roman control, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, was the most powerful judicial body in Israel. And they exercised judicial, legislative, and executive powers at that time. So their command to find Jesus and to put him to death is a real threat, one that they could carry out. And so they put this plan in motion. Here Jesus is is just sitting down, reclining at the table, eating with friends and just enjoying the company of those he loved and receiving the worship of Mary. It is with this background that Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem the following day on Sunday. We will take up that account in Luke next week on what has become known as Palm Sunday. His journey to Jerusalem is almost complete as he takes one day to rejuvenate and rejoice with some dear friends. And even though he knows what awaits him in Jerusalem, he knows that in five days he will be betrayed, tortured, crucified, die, and be buried. Jesus is still taking some time to enjoy some friendly company. If it was you or me, we would probably be hightailing it back to Galilee or some other safe place. But Jesus' face was set towards Jerusalem and his divine appointment at Calvary. Why? To fulfill the Father's plan. As Peter prayed in Acts chapter 4, you'll see it here on the monitor. He says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, speaking of Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus, I mean, speaking of the Father, has moved everything in place for this very moment that Jesus must willingly and obediently walk into knowing what awaits him in that city. In this passage, we read of two responses to the ministry, the life, the teaching of Jesus. There is either joyful reception or hateful rejection. Joyful reception or hateful rejection. Lazarus reclines with Jesus at dinner while his sisters serve and show immense gratitude for his wonderful miracles and his love towards them in raising their their brother. Mary in worship pours out an ointment that was worth a year's wages. We looked at that. I think what we looked at that last week. That's quite a bit of money in Orange County. Could you imagine doing that? Blowing a whole year's wages on one man. But yet she does. Mary's action, and though we're not going to look at it today, Mary's action was much more meaningful than she could ever imagine. As Jesus says, she may be pointing at it, but she's doing it for my burial. Whether Mary knew that or not, most likely not. But Jesus recognized that his time has come. The crowd seeks to know more about Jesus, and and they willingly accept his ministry. They're seeing what he's doing, and they're believing, they're following Judas, though following Jesus for two years, he's a partner in ministry. He's entrusted with their finances. He has healed, uh, healed people. He has cast out demons, according to Scripture. But he's not a true believer. 
but he uses his position to steal from his own friends and companions in order to enrich himself. The religious leaders should have welcomed and embraced Jesus, his teaching, his miracles, his ministry, as those who were part of the the religious leaders who knew the Torah, the Old Testament, that it spoke of Jesus. However, they violently reject his claim and desire to silence him at all costs. What you and I need to learn from this passage, even though it just seems to be kind of a placeholder, you know, as one things are happening, there's now this Jesus here, this scene, and then the effects of the Holy Week. What we learn from joyful receiving and hatefully rejecting is that it is imperative to believe in Jesus when he declares in John chapter 11, you'll see it here, when he says to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You can just hold that up there, Ben. Thank you. See, this is the the question that our eternity, that our whole life, that our purpose hangs on. Do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection life. And that if you believe in him, though you die, you shall live and never die. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus may be taking a a brief respite here before he goes into Jerusalem on Sunday. However, he is going to his death knowing that when he dies, we live. Amen? And this is important for you and I as we consider the lull in the storm that's surrounding him. In a matter of hours, Jesus will put into motion the redemption plan of the Father in reconciling his children back into the family. And you and I understand this, is that you and I have rebelled against God. We have inherited guilt. It's not our sins that that condemn us. It is our inherited guilt, our inherited sin that condemns us before the Father. You and I sin because we are sinners, not sinners because we sin. It's a very important distinction. Jesus will suffer as no human has ever suffered. He will endure such hatred from his own people and rejection from those he created. What is the most hardest and most bitter uh, pain that you could ever suffer? That from a loved one. That from whom you trust the most. The one that you care about the most. One traditional hymn called He Grew the Tree describes this phenomenon. Look at it. He molded and built a small lonely hill that he knew would be called Calvary. Then he made the seed that would grow to be the thorns that would make his son bleed. He made a green stem. He gave it leaves and then gave it sunshine and rain and sheltered it with moss. He grew the tree that he knew would be used to make the old rugged cross. The song, the hymn goes on, nothing took his life. With love, he gave it. He was crucified on a tree that he created. With great love for man, God stayed with his plan. He grew the tree so that we 
might go free. Consider this. Even the hands that bore the whip, the hammer, and the nails were created by Christ Jesus for this very purpose. On that Saturday evening, Jesus was enjoying the fellowship of his close friends, knowing what lay before him. As scripture tells us, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross for the glory of God and for our good. And you know, I've shared with these things when we speak of Christ's obedience, we're speaking of two types of obedience. We speak of his passive obedience, the one that most of us know, what we'll celebrate as we come to Easter. His passive obedience is just being humbled enough and going to the cross, allowing himself to be beaten, to be tortured, to be ridiculed, maligned, to be beaten by those he created. He allowed himself not to speak out on his behalf when accused by others. He allowed his arms to be spread out as he allowed the nails to go into his hands and his feet. And he gave up the Holy or his spirit. That's his passive obedience. That's what gives us the forgiveness. That pays the penalty of our sin. It appeases the wrath of God that is on each and every one of us because of our sin. But what you and I also have to celebrate and worship and give praise to God is that active obedience of God. And that is what you and I have been reading up to chapter 19 of Luke to wherever we are, I think verse 57, I think something of that nature. That's his active obedience. That's where from, from birth, he was actively obeying the word of God, fulfilling the law of God, never getting angry with his brothers, never rebelling against his parents, always having a pure thought, fighting off the temptation of Satan and all the other temptations that would come across him, actively doing the will of the Father, the miracles, the teachings, so on and so forth. It is in that case, in his active obedience, you and I are saved uh, (coughs) from the presence of sin and the power of sin that that, uh, the presence of sin, we're still waiting for it, but the power of sin and the fact that we've been given that act of obedience, that righteousness of Christ. How can we be reconciled by God? By having the penalty of sin broken, but also the, the, the righteousness of Christ put upon us. So here's the question as we just look at these passages and consider that Jesus is the resurrection life. And do you believe? How do you respond to the work and ministry of Jesus Christ? Is it with joyful reception or hateful rejection? Or is it just complacency? Is it neglect? Is it just, hmm, that's nice. There's only one or two. Even the middle I'm seeking of winds up being hateful rejection. In what way are you showing that you believe? Have you repented and put that trust in Christ? Do we react as Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in reclining with Jesus, serving him, and worshiping him? Or are we like Judas, looking for Jesus as a way to make my living or to get a heads up? You know, we're just adding Jesus to our life and stirring. 
Are we those who are looking for Jesus so we can turn him in? Are we looking for those so we can condemn him, criticize him? The Apostle Paul, near the end of his life, wrote in Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What is more or has more worth in your life? Your friends, your family, your job, retirement, investments, salary, the pleasures you have in life, or the fact that you know Christ. He says, I I give up everything because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He's describing one who has joyfully received uh, the, the words of Christ, his active and passive obedience. In order, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my, the law, from the law of God, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that confident trust in the person. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. How do you respond? Are you one who has joyfully received believing in Christ? Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Colossians chapter 1. It's not enough just to know about the things of Christ. You and I are called to decide about Christ as well. Who is he? What has he done? Will I receive him? What do you say to the question, do you believe? Some may even question, what what is Jesus? What is God? What what, What have they done for me lately? How do I see that my life is a mess? Where are they now? I'm struggling with sin, battling it. I continually fail. Where is he now? What about these problems and the sufferings I'm having? Where is he now? Some may even ask, what does this passage have to do with my life today? So Jesus is taking some time out. Everyone takes time out. Look at Colossians chapter 1, go down to verse 13, I believe. Yes, verse 13. Paul, writing to the church of Colossae, says that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the kingdom that Jesus had been preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you need to realize that those who joyfully receive the belief in Christ, turn and repent and turn and trust in him, they're, they're transferred from one domain to another. Those who violently reject him Remain in darkness. It says in his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Goes on then to tell us who this man that Mary is anointed, that is raising up Lazarus from the dead, who Judas is trying to steal from, who the religious leaders are trying to kill. It's not just a prophet. It's not just a great moral teacher. But in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created 
through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If he were to take his hand, everything would just disintegrate, be destroyed. Verse 18, Paul's not done, says, For he is the head of the body, the church. He is beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be what? Preeminent or first. Thank you. Yeah, underline that if you have in your Bible. Highlight that. Is Jesus is to be preeminent in all things of our lives. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's taking a moment to enjoy some friendship. But we know what awaits him. But look at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's speaking of you and I, all of us, he has now reconciled in this body of flesh by his death. This is why Jesus' face is set. This is why in, in the next few hours, Jesus is going to get up and head to Jerusalem in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, and you'll see this on the monitor, I want you to underline this phrase, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. If you can hold that up, Ben. Hopefully you underline that phrase. Look at now here in the big screen. Let's put this in your mind. Take a picture of it of your phone if you have your phone and you need to. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you answered that question, do you believe, by saying, yes, I believe that Jesus is the resurrection life. If you repented of your sin, if you put your trust in him, then he's called you to continue in the faith, a confident trust in the person of God, to be stable and steadfast, not tossed to and fro, as James tells us, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard to something else. Let me tell you, if you're professing Christ and you are not described here, and I want to plead with you, do you truly know Christ? Have you truly joyfully received him? But of course, you may be where it's trouble. There's suffering in our lives that sometimes cause us to lose our balance. That causes us to be unstable. However, I implore you as a Christian, is come back. Do you believe? Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. You yourself need to set your face to Jerusalem as well. The cross of Christ. If you're like many of us, suffering, hardships, and difficulties abound. We're struggling with our finances. We're struggling with our relationships. We're struggling with maybe even your purpose in life. It's hard to see the end of the tunnel. 
Seems to me there's no way of escape. However, we must recognize that Christ has come to liberate us from the penalty and the power of sin. In just a few hours from our passage this morning, as we go into it next week, Jesus is going to get up, give direction, and he's going to go into Jerusalem and set into motion the things that bring us eternal life and reconcile us with God. Let us consider this in the next two weeks as we are thinking of the resurrection of Easter. Let that implore us and compel us to invite our family and friends to Easter services, to Maudie Thursday, to share with them the gospel. We have little cards in the back that have invitation cards. Just take them out. I've got plenty of them. Take the whole thing. As you're going out to dinner, whatever, give them to somebody. It has a little thing that they can watch a little video of what the story of the Bible is. We have tracks out there with our, with our information out there. We need to be inviting souls. Why? Because they also need to joyfully receive Christ. If not, they will spend eternity in hell because they have violently and hatefully rejected the one who has made it available, salvation. Christ has come to liberate us from the penalty and power of sin. Let us join with the children of the Father in finding strength in Christ's obedience. I'm going to close with John chapter 18, verse 37. We're jumping a little bit here. Jesus now is in front of Pilate. He's been trade. John 18, 37, here on the monitor, if you need it as well, then Pilate said to Jesus, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come in the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Would you listen to the voice of the Spirit to this morning as he informs us through Scripture to believe in the one who paid the price and earned our righteousness? Their head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to ask worship team Brandy to go ahead and come up and prepare for our pastor's prayer and our closing song. And just real quickly, I just want to ask you this morning, do you believe? You don't have to raise your hand, but do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Have you, on that belief, have then you have turned and repented of your sin, meaning that you know that sin is, is wrong, you recognize that God's hatred for it, and you turn away from it and, and trying to earn your own righteousness and put your trust in Christ. If so, let's continue in that walk. If you're here this morning and you have done that, but you're struggling in your sin, you're struggling in your relationships, you're struggling in life, then look to the one who says, come those who are weak and weary, for I can bear that burden. Give it to Christ. If you're here this morning, you have never turned towards Christ. Would you do so? Would you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, sent here to be our redemption? Would you call upon him today? There's no magical formula, no magical words. Say, here I am. Save me, I'm a sinner. And follow him. If you're like Gary or uh, Randy and I would love to share with you how you too can know Jesus Christ. How you know that how you can enter into the kingdom of life. Be trans uh, transferred for his glory, for our good. Randy, would you come and close this word with prayer?
We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.